This is Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. The Hip Hop Caucus Hurricane Ida Relief Fund is raising funds to directly benefit family and individuals impacted by Hurricane Ida and who are in need of urgent assistance throughout the Gulf Coast. Every dollar raised will go directly to families and people as cash for things they most need right now, whether it be food, gas, lodging, medicine, or other emergency expenses. Hip Hop Caucus will be matching the first $10,000 donated. Please donate immediately. Go to hiphopcaucus.org or text IDA to 66539. Again, go to hiphopcaucus.org or text IDA Two six six five three nine. Now let's get ready for the coolest show. This is the coolest show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think one hundred percent. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Everybody, welcome to the coolest show. I am here with Wes and Sarah. How y'all doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having us, Rev. Doing well. But I'm excited about this conversation because I have with me here Wes Gobar and Sarah Nesbitt. And they are here uh, with the Black Oak Collective. And so let's get right to it. First and foremost, let's do the, the intro. Who is Sarah Nesbitt? Let's start there. Hi, guys. Um, I'm Sarah Nesbitt, and um, I'm a native of Columbia, South Carolina. Um, I graduated from the College of Charleston in 2018, and um, I uh, have more so a social justice background. I majored in political science and African-American studies. Um, and during my summers, I would come up to D.C. and intern um, through various different organizations. Um, one where I met Wes Gobar. Uh, we both were interns um, on the Hill uh, through the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, and um, I've just been really passionate about social justice and advocacy and, and making sure that Black voices are heard in spaces where we're not traditionally seen. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Um, it, when it comes to environmental justice, I uh, tend to talk about my grandparents who live um, a, in a town outside of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, called Georgetown. Um, they're part of the Gullah Geechee community, um, uh, which, you know, is a community of, um, of, of Black Black faces um, on the coast of South Carolina, um, and our we can trace our history straight to plantations in that area. Um, and, you know, for years, uh, their their communities have been um, adversely impacted by hurricanes and different um, environmental uh, disasters, and they they don't have access to the resources. And so, you know, that that money to repair homes to to assist in in times of need is coming straight out of pockets. Um, and you know, pockets are running dry. So um that's my connection to uh um environmental justice um on a personal level. But that's me, Sarah Nesbitt. Hey, I love that. Wes Gobar. Who is Wes Gobar? Um thanks Rev. Yeah, I'm from Fredericksburg, Virginia. Um, have lived in Virginia most of my life. Um, but my mom, you know, taught at the Smithsonian and the Corcoran. And um, also just we came to D.C. a lot. Um, and I graduated from the University of Virginia in 2018. And my primary interest was history. I thought I wanted to be a historian and um, was really fascinated by, you know, reconstructionary history. Um, and I think when I really just felt like I wanted to, I had to get involved. Um, couldn't, couldn't just like, you know, say in the academic sidelines was um, when I, I became, I got involved with our Black Student Alliance at VA and then, you know, became our president. And that year we had, um, you know, Nazis actually come through our campus and I was, you know, getting involved that summer and organizing. 
Um, and after college, I, I sort of just continued to work in Virginia politics and um, felt, yeah, I just started working through some of those institutions and, and worked for our attorney general's office. And um, I kept, when we go, kept going to events, I kept seeing people, um, you know, come up to us about the two pipelines we had in Virginia, uh, the Mountain Valley Pipeline and the ACP, you know, signs all over the place, whether it's a rural community, you know, black, you know, black community, like um, um, Buckingham County or wherever. And it was such an important issue, but I felt like I had no, I was, I was the body man and sort of driver and aid for, for that, that role, but um, having no avenue to really address that. And I think after a year, I was looking for a way to really just get involved and the vision for the Green New Deal really just animated me. And I had the chance to get involved with Evergreen Action um, and help them build the organization from the beginning. And so that's what I do in my day job. I'm now our coalition's lead and I sort of manage our movement um, relations and coalition partner relations with a um, Evergreen, which is building federal climate policy. Um, it has been really just working uh, closely with the Biden administration and Congress and came out of the Inslee campaign. You also just pointed out the, the records behind my wall. So I love, you know, jazz music, play trumpet, and I'm trying to learn piano. So, um, and then I, I try to write when I can too. So there's some other things about me. Yeah, yeah. For those who are listening, uh, behind Wes, he has some vinyl. You don't see vinyl too often. And Wes ain't old, y'all, so I like the vinyl. You know what I mean? That's a good look. If nothing else for the... Uh, you know, the aesthetics of the look behind him, but it definitely he had, it, it means something. Um, well, Sarah, and, go ahead. Oh, okay. No, no, that's good. No, I feel you. Actually, if you don't know, actually, that's real. Wes was pointing to his head there, and he was saying that, you know, some of us in our community are like old souls, and that's like real and certain things. And he mentioned jazz, and I'm actually a jazz person too, just FYI. I'm a, that's where the, it stays in my car on the uh, XM, XM dial. I, I stay right there. Um, so that's what's up. So I, I, I may have some jazz questions for you uh, in, in, that, in, that, in, in that regard. Uh, and jazz and poetry always goes hand in hand. So we may, we may, we may have, I may, I may slide a few of those in here. But listen, we're we going to get right to it, y'all. y'all, y'all, y'all are y'all okay with that? We get right, right, right to it? Okay, all right, Sarah. I, I I didn't see you nodding on that one, Sarah. Make sure I just I welcome you to the. This is the coolest show, so we gonna. So this actually, I'll start. I'll start at ten, and then we'll kind of go down from there. So, uh, both of you worked with the Congressional Black Caucus, um, in some capacity. Um, Give me your real thoughts on this response. A lot of folks in our community have said that the Congressional Black Caucus is more like the Corporate Black Caucus. When you hear that, what's your thoughts? Wes, since you're smiling there. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's very real. I mean, the, most of Congress is corporate, right? Like, you know, both parties, right? That is the structure that we're working in um, and the constraints we have to, that anybody who does advocacy just, you know, that that's just sort of the, the reigning um, ideology and influence over the last, you know, 40 years. But I mean, if you look at when the CBC started, um, you know, 40 years ago, um, the, or over 40 years ago, the values. And I think um, just some, some of the mission has not necessarily stayed the same part of that is, you know, I'll be, I'll be also be blunt. There are some people that, have been in there too long, you know, that need to retire. Um, I was literally just reading a political article about how I see Ossie Hastings, you know, died in, in office, which is, you know, sad, but I, I, I think when you, when you stay in a certain extent, like you, it's hard to represent people, but also like, who, who are you listening to and giving credit to? Like, you know, certain groups um, can have a seat in the room and maybe get a meeting but then who's actually making the policy um, or having more influence in the policy. And so um, that's not to say that every member, you know, is corporate. Um, there are a lot of really good members. Um, there are a lot of people who are trying to do best with the system that we have, but I think it's like, you know, it's more of a systemic 
analysis rather than to say like, okay, every individual member is, you know, bought and sold by, uh, you know, Walmart or whatever. Hmm. Sarah, your thoughts? Yeah, I can agree with that. I think that um, when I look at the CBC, I think that there needs to be new blood coming in. I, there needs to be younger faces um, and, and younger voices uh, coming to the forefront. And I think that's how we dismantle that uh, perception of it being the corporate Black Caucus. Um, and um, I, I think when you get more young voices and, and different perspectives on, on life, coming to the table, you're able to really do the work of, you know, of the underrepresented. Um, so I think once we're, or once the, the caucus is able to come to grips with the fact that there are so many um, old members who aren't really doing the work, passing the legislation that needs to be passed um, or having those conversations, um, then, you know, that, that'll be the determining factor if we get things done in Congress going forward. Yeah, thank you both for those responses. And, and it's real. I mean, we, we have to have these conversations because we know either you shape policy or policy shapes you. This is about life or death, and this is not a game. And for those who are listening who think that we don't respect, I, I can I can speak for Sarah and Wes and myself. We, there is so much respect for the members of the Congressional Black Caucus and what they've done for our community. But this is literally about where we are now, and and the Bible says that iron sharpens iron. And so, you know, with that, both Sarah and Wes, this is my next thing. You know, I know we've been coming, we, we, we with the pandemic, everything was virtual, so we didn't really have what uh, we have with the Congressional Black Caucus Annual Legislative Conference. And for those who don't know, it's a, a week or two-week-long um, event where people come together. And a lot of times, one of my frustrations has been that that has been a time where people have been looking to push resumes or push parties. And it, it just, it, it makes me, it breaks my heart because our people are dying. Like, I was like, yo, man, our people are dying and we ain't got no time for this. So, you know, and I'm not sure, and, I'm, and I agree, Wes is right. There are some members who ain't with that either. They, they'll tell you, I ain't, with, I ain't with none of this. But there's something else there. And I think that we, we have to fix and this is in regards to climate in particular, because a lot of times we've seen that they actually, most members of the CBC do well on climate, but a lot of times a lot of members of the CBC are still very close to the fossil fuel industry. How do we, and this is in general, this is for all y'all, all y'all listening, you're, you're on the hook too, civil rights organizations, everybody, everybody on the hook. So y'all don't think y'all listening right now and thinking, Ooh, they ain't deal with us. No, we're dealing with everybody in our community who's been around in this process. The question is, how do we fight for our people our way? Sarah, I start with you. Um, I think it's a matter of of educating our community. I don't think that there are, you know, and I mean, I can speak for my own family. Um, my family doesn't realize what affects them when it comes to climate and environmental injustices. And once, and, and, you know, I, I personally would look at my congressperson as someone who can relay that information to them and, and create spaces for them to, to be educated on what is going on and what legislation is passing and what is being brought to the floor uh, when it comes to these, these big environmental issues that adversely affect Black faces within this state. Um, so I think it's an education piece. Um, you know, when these organizations who are dedicated to social justice leave out environmental issues um, when they're talking about their, their, you know, their docket for the next year and what they want to, to focus on, I think we're doing a disservice because there's so many different ways that environmentalism and is, is intersected with the economy and, and, and with uh, political power, we, we tend to shy, like shy away from speaking on it. And we don't, a lot of people don't know about it. The public, the general public doesn't know about it. Um, so um, holding our elected officials accountable, holding uh, the heads of those organizations accountable to educate and to have that, that clear, uh, transparent line of communication um, to to the general public so that they know what is going to affect them 
and how they can uh, have their voices heard is, is going to be extremely important. Um, but I'll pass it to you, Wes. Yeah, um, I, I definitely think there's no silver bullet approach and we have to be able to play the field from all sides. Like we're never going to get liberation just by working in traditional advocacy through Congress. Um, but I think a lot of these things also work in, in concert, right? Like we're talking about a lot of things, um, the, the realm of possibility in Congress is right now we have a trifecta that wouldn't have happened, I think actually without the uprisings this summer. Um, you look at how voting registration like went way up, right? All the, the work that I'm doing with Evergreen on climate, that the strength of the climate movement empowered, um, empowered has changed um, the, the, the discourse on climate the realm of possibility, the ability for us to be able to get some of these solutions through. And that's not to say that the role of the movement is just to like provide, you know, muscle for, you know, then to work in Congress, because that's actually, it, it, it's been so disempowered for, you know, the last um, 40 years, because I've talked about like uh, corporatism has been this, you know, sort of reigning thing. So we, we just have to be able to, I think, invest in all fronts, um, and I think actually to go back a little bit on the CBC discussion too, um, you know, CBCF actually had this program where, um, in, where Sarah and I, like they, they gave, they, they gave students free housing stipend, right. And just place them in offices. And, um, for the 50 students, yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. But most people who work in Congress, like you have to have an unpaid internship, um, or, um, know somebody and then have that experience. And so the, the perspective that the staffers are having is not connected with everyday people. It's not connected, connected to working people. Um, it, it, when it, you know, there's, there are, it, it, it shrinks the pool and the diversity within that pool of black staffers. So I think also just what part of what Black Oak is doing is that's the, the same thing is true for environmental organizations. So part of what Black Oak is doing is giving the resources to level the playing field for, um, for, for young Black people, for people who are just interested in environment and maybe in the middle of a career, maybe looking to switch into something else to be able to get in there and to be able to um, be in these positions of power and actually be able to um, then work in tandem with other people who are working outside and have that perspective or anything else. So I think that community building piece and the resource sharing piece is something I'm really excited about with, with Black Oak. Nah, thank you both for that. Let me take a quick break right here, actually. Wes, if you can, your mic is on your desk. So I know you're, you're hitting your desk and it's getting a little bit of feedback in that process. So just be kind of mindful. Uh, I know we want, we want a little jazz beat, but we don't want the beat overcome what you're saying. We want to hear what you got to say now. Um, so, uh, Cross, let's get back to it right here. Um, so that's wonderful. I, so Wes, I, I hear you. And so let me actually follow up with that. I want I want you to tell us, I want you both to tell us about Black Oak Collective. Before I get there, let me finish, just close this loop on the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, one, let me just say this to all those listening. This is not just them, but thank you, actually, Jackie Patterson um, and the work that she has done in this, that we have to make sure that our organizations, our politicians are divesting from fossil fuels. You cannot take money from those who are killing our community. Those whose business plan is a death sentence for our community, you cannot take their money. So for all those who have been taking money from the fossil fuel industry, please stop. And I'll just leave that there. I really, I'm sure, hopefully everybody is nodding their head and we can move forward. But, you know, Wes, I kind of want to follow up on something you said about Evergreen. And then I want definitely to get to Black Oak Collective. Um, on the good side of this, as I mentioned, remember a lot of members of the Commercial Black Caucus um, have been outstanding um, on climate in regards to policy, obviously from Barbara Lee to Cory Booker. I mean, the list is long, right? Yvette Clark. Shout out to all of them who have been just doing some amazing things on climate. Um, but, you know, Wes, keeping it 100. Um, you know, the big greens and the big blues, as they say, uh, uh, you know, they will put up white politicians. Um, and, you know, they were, and they will be the standard bearer. So speaking of Evergreen, you know, we have uh, Governor Jay Inslee, and we obviously have Senator in the White House. I can go on the line, and Senator Markey, and those are the ones who you see. You don't, you don't, they don't push forth uh, black folk. Is that a problem? Yes, unappropriately, yes. Um, 
Yeah, I th- I think that so like the the definition of what we consider like a climate. I, I was listening to your producer podcast yesterday, and you were like, you know, it's not about just CO two and methane levels, right? And there's a disconnect, I think, when you're talking with like, say, you're talking with a we act or something, and it's like, well, we care about pollution broadly speaking, right? And I think a lot of times environmental justice is put in this set aside box as like, you know, this is not climate policy or this is an extra a complimentary. Uh, and the people who are championing those policies don't obviously then don't get that same support. And then, and then I think that there is also just an unconscious thing sometimes too, where, yeah, like just you are more likely to, to, to um, see certain people as leaders if you are white, right? Um, and that those are things that I think the climate movement is working on and getting better on. And I think that's also why we have to apply the pressure, um, both from Black Oak and then both, I think, Black people in positions like mine, right? I think, at, like I was saying, like every position and every role is important. And um, I just feel very, a strong sense of responsibility, even with the work that I do with Evergreen of, you know, making sure that we really put the, the justice, you know, in standards investment and justice agenda. Um, so. No, thank you for that. And for full disclosure, I am also on the advisory board of Evergreen. So definitely appreciate the work that Evergreen does. And like I said, here at the coolest show, this is about, you know, iron sharpens iron. So this is about this. We want to, we want to figure out ways to get it real. So just on that, just so you understand what we're saying here is that black, brown, and indigenous people are great on climate. If we're going to broaden our movement, we have to have those who are the policymakers up front. If all they see is white people, particularly white men, if all they see is that leading on the policy, they're going to think that this is the issue for white men. And so we have to break down that silo and make sure that people can see other policymakers in that regard as well. Sarah, so... Uh, There's two more things on that. Uh, One, it has to be done at the beginning. Explain that. When you say at the beginning, what do you mean when you... Yeah, because I think if the, the incorporation is not done at the start of not just policy, not just Congress or, you know, elected leaders, but, you know, black and brown leader, community leaders, then there is a bunch of work you have to do on the back end to get, you know, input and to sort of organize and, you know, make sure people are on board with the vision or then revise that vision. So that's extra work. Um and also just from an organizing and like actually winning standpoint, there is no climate movement that does not win unless it's a, unless the policy, on the policy, unless it's a win for black communities, right? Like unless black communities are, you know, staying behind um, and benef- materially benefiting, I think from that climate policy, like we can't win. So we have to win together and it like, it just, our work will be better. Our work is better um, when we, when we recognize and work with black and brown leaders from the start. Hmm. No, that, that's real. Sarah, tell us about Black Oak Collective. What is it and why do we need it now? Um, well, I, you know, and I can talk about my own uh, personal perspective of what Black Oak is uh, before I dive into it. Uh, but, you know, Wes and I, we, we both are graduates of predominantly white institutions and, you know, deciphering uh, what is is best for us and and what those communities are once we get out of college was was really difficult. Um, And we all came together, um, created this space uh, for for Black professionals, for Black advocates, for for Black people who are uh, really passionate about the environment and what it means to us um, in terms of sustainability. and we were able to create a space where people can find that community that they may not find on their campuses and in, in their own um, cities and towns in the workspace um, to to focus on those issues. And in addition to focusing on that, those issues uh, gain uh, different resources uh, through the implementation of mentorship programs, through the implementation of of networking events um, and things of that nature so that they could be a part of a network that will assist them in being successful within this industry. Um, And that's that's the basis of Black Oak Collective. Um, And we've been able to 
really um, hone in on that that aspect of community building. Um, so so that's what we're we're you know the purpose of Black Oak. Um, so yeah. No, that's great. Let I me mean, follow up one thing you just mentioned. I know that one of the, the things about your approach is to building the next generation of professionals. And so before I get to that, you mentioned you and Wes were in two uh, white, or white institutions. So I played college basketball. So my first college I went to was a white institution before I actually transferred to a black college. Um, and so I got to tell you, when I did the white school, it was tiring. I, I ain't gonna lie, man. It was like, it was just so, I don't know if it was tiring for y'all, but it was tiring for me because I always felt that I had to hold up the bloodstained banner for black folk. It was like, and then I played basketball and then I, then I was an activist. I was, I was, I went to the school. I chose the school I went to um, because of uh, Acton Lynch. Shout out Acton Lynch, one of the most profound uh, African-American studies professors um, out there. And so, and, you know, um, I went there because of him. And, man, you know, it was just tiring. Do, do, y'all, do y'all feel like, I mean, how does, how does that experience actually, as you're looking at professionals who should be coming into this workforce invigorated and inspired and fired up, coming into it literally tired? How does that impact what you're doing? Um, I know for me, uh, just coming from, uh, the South, I'm from South Carolina. I I think that I, I experience, I have a a lot of different experiences than, than people, um, in different parts of the country. And in addition to that, you're going to a predominantly white institution in, you know, in the South and Charleston, South Carolina, this where the, you know, the, the start of the, (laughs) the civil war occurred. Um, so you, walking through the streets, walking through the halls, knowing that, you know, my, my ancestors built these, these institutions and could not benefit from them. Um, I, I think that was eerie in itself. Um, I, I, it, it kind of propelled me into wanting to know more, wanting to know, uh, what, what resources were being, uh, guarded from a person who looked like me. Um, it, it propelled me into advocating on my campus and always, like I said, like always being the face of, of a justice, social justice movement on my, on my campus. Um, so it, and, you know, I, I, I get, I grew really, uh, tired, um, (laughs) halfway through, um, but wanted to keep pushing. Um, and so when I graduated from school, you know, that's all I knew. I still wanted to keep pushing because I know that, you know, we have to kind of break those ceilings and create those pathways so that other students don't have to experience what we experienced uh, when we came out of uh, undergrad. Um, so I think that's what's in my mind. Um, you know, I'm tired, I'm weary, but I'm going to keep going so that no other little black girl or, you know, has to, or, or um, has to experience um, I guess those, those hardships that I did, um, mm. you, you should, you should come into a space, uh, post-grad invigorated and ready to do the good work. Um, but you know, I'm exhausted, but I'm hopeful. And I think that's what's keeping me going. Mm. Wes. Yeah, I, I really, I mean, uh, we have to make everything better for the people that came behind us. Right. But one thing that one of our co-founders Kier Gibbon said is that, you know, we were just sort of talking broadly and she's like, you know, black Oak, is not necessarily on the front lines, but we're the supply station, you know, the, we're the water station, right? And um, when we're, people are in these spaces and they're exhausted and they have to be more than human, I think it, it helps to have community and spaces just for us. Um, and, and, you know, at, at UVA, um, I definitely, definitely, definitely felt that exhaustion point. Not just, I mean, we had, you know, not only Nazis, um, and, you know, police brutality incident in my first year. And then just addition to like a very racist history, racist incidents, you know, all four years, but we had institutions that were built by black students, you know, like, um, not only the black student Alliance, but like, you know, um, you know, fashion shows and like, you know, uh, black voices and like, you know, our, you know, D9s and, um, you know, just other, like, so I, I think that the institution 
we're trying to build with Black Oak is really just trying to give people that space to um, not just not just charge up enough to recharge up enough to be human, but like to 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 have the the resources and knowledge and the connections in the community to um, to to be to be better. And I'll also say we're not just focused on say the whatever percentage of Black people who are say it may be an island or working with a few other people or you know, a group of people in predominantly white organizations, I think it's actually really important for, um, you know, again, we, we try to be very broad with the language, including advocates and students um, and anyone and, any, and other, you know, black folks in the work. It's like, it's important for, for people who are quote unquote professionals, which is, you know, in itself kind of a loaded term, but we're trying to figure that out. People who are, you know, quote unquote professionals to like be in connection with folks who are, and community and doing work in predominantly black organizations, institutions. Because if we're not having that conversation, like who are we representing, right? And so I think Black Oak is also, ha we have the potential and opportunity to be an important channel for that in, in our area. Um, yeah. Yeah, so this this question here, they let this one sink in before you respond to it. Let, let, let it hit you for a minute. Um, so based upon that, that you both went to institutions. You paid for that, actually. You actually gave money for that exhaustion and tired uh, aspect you went through to get your education. And, and you both have admitted, um, like myself, that that is tough, particularly for a young person who's usually between 18 and 24, um, to go through that experience. So knowing what that is, Knowing how that feels, knowing how every day you have to be on your P's and Q's, why in the world, why in the world would then you then create something which would then have a bunch of black people going into a predominantly white environmental movement for careers? What is it that you are trying to change? Are you just going to put them into a lifelong uh, endeavor of tiredness? Or is there something extra with Black Oak that you're saying, listen, the reality for Black professionals and our goal for creating pathways into environmental careers isn't just putting you into a white space so you can keep going through that forever. <laughs> You'll be 65 and you're just tired and exhausted fighting with those in that movement. Or are you thinking of something else that is more distinct for Black professionals going into this space? Sarah, Sarah, go ahead. And Wes, like, I mean, I think we can, you know, bounce this stuff off, things off of each other. But, um, you know, I think of Black Oak as our tool to dismantle what we've already known um, in this space. It's, it's our tool to, to rise up. It's our tool to get... Uh, Black faces at the table and to, and not only getting Black faces at the table to have these, to be in those spaces to, for decision-making, but we're also encouraging and trying to um, really implement this, this ideology, ideology of Black, you know, Black professionals and advocates in this space to create their own spaces as well. I think Black Oak isn't, um, a monolith when we we're talking about um, getting black people into this field, you know, and it doesn't mean that we're placing them into um, these corporate settings or uh, these really formal, um, these formal constructs of, of where people need to work. And it, we're, also, we're also trying to encourage people to uh, be the leaders that they know they can be. Um, and, and dismantle what we've known to be the norm for years. Um, you know, with our collaboration uh, with different programs and different organizations, we're able to achieve, achieve uh, you know, different, I guess, different views of what this space looks like. Um, and I mean, I'll pass it to you, Wes, but I think of, of Black Oak as our our, our tool to dismantle what we've already known. Well, before you, before you pick that baton up there, Wes, I, uh, I need Sarah to kind of go a little bit further into that. 
Um, when you just explain that some more, I, I I believe I understand that this that you're acknowledging that the system, particularly um, as it is set up now within the environmental sector for working, is a predominantly um, white and even not just white. Let's be clear: this this hostile um, to people of color and women. Um, and so in that aspect, you're, what you're saying, that part of Black Oak's process is to re-look at that system and to dismantle that and to build up new, or is it to create within? I'm just trying to get more understanding of what you mean in that dismantling part of your conversation. And I, I personally think both can, can exist in the same universe, right? Um, you know, we're, we're increasing the access to um, careers and job opportunities. And to achieve that, we have to uh, bridge with and collaborate with different organizations. Um, but we're also creating a community of Black professionals and advocates who are passionate about this work. And within that, uh, you know, they're, they're encouraged to, to not only, one, create that retention uh, within maybe the entity that they work in, but to also create um, new opportunities for themselves. Um, I think uh, with with that advocacy piece, um, the the limits are endless, um, and and people are able to uh, start from scratch. Um, and I think in addition to that, we don't just work with predominantly white um, organizations. We we work with with black organizations that are doing the work and who want more talent and more um, you know more are more professionals who look like us in their spaces uh, to do that, that good work. Um, so I think that there's so many different avenues uh, for all of these thoughts and these ideas to coincide so that we can essentially redefine what it means, what being Black in, a, in an environmental or sustainability space looks like. Hmm. Wes? Yeah. Um... Definitely would agree that representation is is a tool um, and not an end to itself. I think I, I have three thoughts to this question specifically. Um, one, there are people who are young black people are going into the movement no matter what, and they're going to the work no matter what, and it is a harmful space. And it's a question of how are they prepared to go in and actually who's grabbing them? And in fact, when we actually started Black Oak, um, when we first like publicly launched in the fall, we, I actually had someone reach out to me on LinkedIn and, you know, she said, uh, like I, I majored in marine science in college and I really wanted to work, um, on, on environmental issues, but the people who came to my school and had the resources was big oil. You know, she ended up working for an oil company for, for several years. And it was, you want to talk about toxic environments, <laughs> Uh, as you can imagine, and you know, she wished that there were that that she had something like Black Oak, where you know the there were um, a network of people, her a mentorship people were her to talk to, like a job board that actually collected a lot of these opportunities, and people were to sort of give her um, the, the rundown on the fact that it is a toxic space. I think so. Who who's like preparing people who actually are planning that are going to go in no matter what? But I think it's also a channel. Right. And so there are people working in a variety of environmental fields um, who can who need to be talking with and in conversation with and learning from folks who are um, who are doing the work on the front lines, whether you are. And I think we, we try to be inclusive of a wide variety of fields. So whether that's, say, transportation or urban planning or solar and clean energy business um, or traditional, you know, green advocacy or anything. I think, I think being that channel and also again, strengthening and, and working to strengthen like and work with other black organizations. Um, the last thing I think is just from a broad scale, the, the economy is entirely going to be um, focused on, we have to mobilize, right? And we're talking about if the, say the American jobs plan passes, you know, $3 trillion over the next eight years, um, that the, the, the entire sort of axis of, of where things are going to go, we're going to be green 
jobs, green work, um, and a wide variety of spectrums. And I think if we're not actually making these decisions, if we're not actually prepared to go in, we don't have people who are, um, you know, who are who are determining, you know, how is this policy going to be implemented, um, or how are, where how are we going to do this solar build out in, in this community, or you know, where is this climate resilience project? You know, say, say Norfolk, which is in Virginia, um, there's a lot of climate gentrification going on as they're preparing for sort of how to um, to deal with the rising tides. That's actually, you know, it's 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 pricing people out in there and it's changing the the geography of the community. And so I think it's impossible to say like we can completely just sit out and not be pushing people to be um you know doing this work to be in this it's a, it's a tough choice but that's i mean i think we've always had to stick stick young people into a meat grinder you look at the, the 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 civil rights movement and you know young people are going and um you know then going out there and 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 getting getting hosed it, it's 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 it, there is a it's a not a it's, there's a no-win situation but I think we have to do both. Like you can't say, you know, we're going to focus on just this 80% or just this 20%. Um, we, we're, we're trying to strengthen and, you know, prepare people and work with, you know, black institutions and organizations and also prepare people to, um, to change and do better within um, those white institutions. Thank you both. I mean, every time we have this conversation, <laughs> this is why the coolest show has really become something bigger than just a uh, a conversation uh, meeting place because it's it's these are the conversations that we have to have in our community. Weston, so let me ask you this question. This actually this might be just maybe some clarification. Uh, how do you define professionals? Yeah, I think um, I think it's it's I would say. Just broadly speaking, anyone who is just interested in doing this work, who is who is doing environmental work full time, pretty much. I we are new, and I think still trying to figure out how to best define that. And so um, it's tough because what for professional is this term that comes with a load of sort of images and you know maybe white white supremacist and dominant sort of standards. But I think it's it's tough to sort of encapture. We our founders are you know work in you know clean energy business and solar and or say you know nonprofit fields and and finance. Um, I think that's what people might traditionally think about as professionals. But I think we want to be very inclusive, um, you know, of just anyone who is dedicating all of their time to fight for climate and environmental justice or to do any of that work that encompasses with it. So I think I think professional for me is really just about the the time and effort more than sort of like a range of standards or qualifications. Hmm. Sarah? No, I'd have to agree. I think we, and can you hear me still? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Okay, perfectly. Uh, uh, so I, I'd have to agree with Wes. Um, you know, I, I don't look at professionals as this this one, like I said, monolith of, of what a working person in DC looks like. You know, I, I look at a professional as someone who can be simply an advocate um, who's who's dedicated and putting in that time and that work into a cause that they are passionate about. Um, you know, it, it's it's definitely subjective. And I think that we do not, you know, we want to be an inclusive space. And so we want anyone who is passionate about this work to be involved in uh, this community um, of because at, at the heart we're we're all doing the work because we are all passionate about this subject. So uh, let's 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 stay there for a second. Um, um, let's deal with the that the idea because I well actually sir, let me ask to follow up this you Sarah on this one. Um, obviously organizers and and students and people who obviously obviously themselves work full time, are they also considered professionals in in this lens? I would think so. Um, I com- was a community organizer on the Elizabeth Warren campaign um, 
for up until she dissolved from and from the start from of her campaign. And I considered myself um, an environmental um, or a sustainability professional because I I you know I was the front line facing person on the ground talking about you know what she was going to do for this you know this subject matter and in New Hampshire that's the subject matter that most people are passionate about I think that that was something that I was passionate about as well and so I was able to be that that person who effectively relayed these goals and these missions and and effectively had those conversations with people to to allow them to understand um I was doing that work um, and even if I weren't working on that campaign, I'd still be doing that work because that's what I had always planned to do. I always planned to get into organizing. I always planned to uh, advocate on this on this topic. Um, so I, I think that, you know, all of those things fall into um, someone being a professional and, I, and they don't have to label themselves as a professional if they don't don't care to. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, they have a home within Black Oak. Um, because that's that's who we go after. We want to be this intersectional uh, community of, of Black folks who are passionate. Yeah, and I'll also just quickly add that, you know, we started the idea for this during the pandemic and launched in October. And I, I wouldn't say we're, we're necessarily wedded to the term, but we're trying to figure out the best way to really just be inclusive of what we mean. So this is an open conversation. And, you know, I, I think uh, it is worth interrogating and packing the, the terms to, but that that's something we're still trying to figure out the best way to to really just figure out what encompasses the what we want to do with Black Oak. Yeah, and I'm hopeful that folks who are that we that we're using this conversation now that so that is, I guess you're asking if folks were listening and they somehow meet meet you over there and you guys at Black Oak somewhere to engage. I'm hopeful that folks who are listening to this will. We'll be like, man, that's that is fascinating. Actually, how how does Black Oak resource or meet those needs or hope to for the folks you want to benefit from your work? Or 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 who are the folks in the community that Black Oak might not reach to get those resources to? Like two parts to that. Wes, Sarah. So um I, I think we we can the, the, Sarah, I think there's an opportunity to talk backwards, but I think this would also be a great opportunity to um, talk about the GROWS program too. Um, so I, I don't know if you want to start. Um, well, how, how, about, about how about I look back and then you talk about GROWS? Yeah. So um, D, Black Oak is, we're, we're localized, we're focused on DC, Maryland, and Virginia, primarily just because that's easy to start with. And also it is, um, that's where a lot of our connections are just to start with too. Um, and it's been a little tough to do this virtually, um, but we've managed to, to make do a little bit. Um, we've had a, we've had several live panels and, and Zoom events with you know dozens of um, young people and, and students, specifically just yeah with with people who have been doing the work in Virginia or in other or just or you know an EJ nationally and sort of like okay well what is it, what is what is it actually like being in this work. And you described it as a toxic space, like I think students actually getting the, the load on on what it is, how to navigate through that, um, and just how to sort of how people got to where they are is actually extremely helpful. And so some of those events um, we've, that we've actually partnered with um, other nonprofits to, to, to host um, and then work directly with um, outreach to both HBCUs and PWIs to get that in front of people. Um, we also have our ongoing job board. And I think um, where people can see opportunities from a wide range of fields. And when we uh, gather in person, we'll have happy hours, hopefully one in DC actually next month in, in July, which we'll be announcing soon. Um, and then just fireside chats for people to learn about environmental issues people are passionate about in other fields. Um, and we had a broader panel with Howard uh, Law School actually on um, sort of what, what's at stake and what's going on in the agenda with Biden environmental justice. Um, the last piece I think is the sort of mentorship and anything else which we can talk about with Groves, but Sarah, if I miss anything in that description, feel free to um, 
to jump on. And also this last point is like, although we are localized sort of DC, Maryland and Virginia, we have members and partnerships with other businesses and nonprofits that are all over the country. And so because we're virtual, um, really working with anyone, that's just sort of like where we're putting a lot of time and energy into. Um, so Sarah, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, and so we're we're excited to announce that we are launching um, a new program within Black Oak called the Gross Program. Um, we were really excited to uh, get professionals in a close knit space, given um, you know even the pandemic, and hopefully it'll turn into an in person project once um, uh, restrictions are lifted. But you know we we're creating this this program where. Um, Intimate communities of Black Oak members would would thrive um, and meet on a biweekly basis. Um, they would have these discussions centered on uh, Black environmental uh, and their environmentalism and and the professional experiences that they that they go through on a day to day basis. Um, and it's it's an opportunity for us to provide this consistent professional development. Um, a space for them to talk about shared technical expertise um, and have that intellectual exchange, no matter um, what they look like, where they come from, uh, what their background is. Um, and this is, you know, an, an opportunity for us to engage with the community um, and allow those, those groups, the small intimate groups to get out and do work outside of their their normal nine to fives. Um, we've definitely partnered with a lot of different organizations who provide those opportunities for us to, to have those service learning experiences. Um, it's really um, an, another opportunity for mentorship. Um, these are five to 10 uh, Black Oak members in these small groups. Um, they're varying in career stages and life experiences. Um, so, you know, to go back to your, your point earlier about how we're able to um, bridge these, the gap from the younger generation to the older generation, this is a way that we're, we're mitigating that. And they're able to have these mentorship relationships and learn from one another. Um, and we're, we're able to bring our community closer together, um, foster that mentorship again, and expand your network within that that realm. Um, in addition to sharpening your skills that and knowledge and resources that you probably didn't come into Black Oak uh, equipped with. So we're really excited about that and we're, we're launching um, this fall. That's exciting. Uh, well, I'm, I'm hopeful after this conversation that y'all are talking with the good folks at Hip Hop Caucus, which has now, as you know, become a large... Uh, figure within this movement, so hopefully there's some good connections on that on that on that pathway. Um, so I got a couple more questions, and then th those are they're, they're not hard. None, none of this is hard, um, but I do have a fun question too. Hopefully, um, you mentioned young people, and I want to get to that. So this is a two part. I'm trying to put these questions together here. The one question really is how are how is Black O supporting? particularly not just young people who want to be black professionals within the environmental movement, but particularly those who want to create their own uh, spaces. So groups that we've had like um, Youth vs. Apocalypse, obviously Generation Green. I mean, they're, and I'm, talking about, I'm specifically talking about black, and indigenous, and brown, um, uh, young people-led organizations who are saying in their very powerful spirit that, listen, I'm not gonna go into the burning house. I'm sorry, Sarah and Wes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not with that. I'm not going to the burning house at all. And my liberation for my people is gonna come through me and, and the groups that we're working with. How do you support them? In other words, things that are important from an operational standpoint, um, from a creating a, the creating the entities, legal, accounting, operations. I mean, how do you support them and even their professional development? As they are didn't work out. Is there is there is there a space for in Black Oak for that? And also then long term, what's the succession plan for those who've been in this movement for quite some time? Are you preparing people um, to literally kind of have lives after being professionals? Is that also part of the Black Oak plan? Yeah, I, I think I would say we have a few um, ideas and values related to that front, but that's something we're still workshopping. I think um, mutual aid 
is actually like really important. And so as we are working with businesses and nonprofits and actually getting some of that white coat money, we're looking at how exactly what is the best model and way to make sure those resources are going directly into building up our own, building up institutions, right? Rather than, you know, just redistributing it back into the complex. So I think, I think that's something that's really important to us. Um, we've had a chance to talk with Generation Green at least once and are hoping to sort of further that, that conversation. I haven't had a chance to talk with Youth versus Apocalypse, but I, they, they did a great job on your last episode. Um, but I think that they're part of like having a inside out strategy has to be um, both, you know, financial material support, but also, um, you know, sharing knowledge and right. So if we're people with experience, say, navigating the nonprofit space, you know, how do we leverage our resources um, to, and knowledge, you know, to go back to people? Or if we have connections with a lot of, say, the movement elders, right? Um, how do we how do we leverage their knowledge? And so I think these are things that we are floating around and thinking about, but as just a new organization that has really just been four volunteers just working, um, working full-time jobs, have have not had the chance to fully develop yet. Um, that would be my answer at the moment. So uh, let me, I have one last question. This is for you, Wes, and then the last fun question is for both you and Sarah. Wes, just because I know you're in this, can you, I want you to, and this is totally different than what we talked about. Actually, not really totally different. It's part of it, actually. Um, tell black folk who are listening, because we got a good listenership of black folk who are listening, why it's important for policy and for us to win on policy. And I'll frame it like this. Demonstration without legislation leads to frustration. So give folks the, uh, the one, two, the quick answer on why policy is important uh, for black people. Climate policy, make sure that this policy. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, actually, let me put it this way. Um, climate policy is always happening. There's gonna be climate decisions, but, but whether line three is a climate policy, but it's one that just makes the climate crisis worse, that pollutes the water, and et cetera, right? You know, the, there is a plant, you know, maybe next to your community that the reason why we're at, you know, one in 1,000, that's an outdated stat, but like, you know, many uh, people, Black people dying of COVID is because of, you know, there's a fossil fuel plant in your community that your city council, you know, permitted or the, the you know, that the federal government allowed, right? And like these decisions are being made one way or another. And there is a mobilization, I think. Um, I, I think that we, like, we, that climate policy is going to be made with us or without us. And it can be made to where we put, you know, good union jobs in, in black communities, to where we put, cut community pollution out of our, you know, communities first, to where we are building, you know, public transportation and green spaces in our communities, where that includes, you know, improves our education, uh, ability like our, our we can take lead pipelines you know out of our communities our health um, our you know physical mental well-being or you know it will be just sort of it's going to be these decisions are being made right now you know right now and I, I think um, on the local level on the federal level on the state level um, and the people making them need th their they their background does not reflect us a lot of the time um, they're not talking to people in our communities and. They, I think it, we've shown to be very effective when we step in and, and put that presence in. So I think, I think, yeah, it's, these are, these are real decisions that affect, you know, every range of the black community and environmental justice is really just a, I think, reflection of other power dynamics. It's a reflection of, you know, economic injustice, you know, of class. It's a reflection of, you know, uh, of racial, you know, exploitation of racial capitalism, right? Like that, that, that's so I think, it's an environmental justice policy, climate policy specifically, um, ties into all those efforts. And it, it, those things happen because we're not interjecting in the conversation sometimes or the advocacy may be. Um, so I think, I think that that's an, it's an, we're at an inflection point. We're at an inflection point with the next 10 years because these decisions are going to ramp up. 
um, and people are feeling increased pressure to really do something. Um, what was the second part of your question? Well, actually, hold that. I'm actually going to throw this to get you some money because I want to make sure that folks support uh, Black Oak Collective. And I was, so I want to actually hold that thought there, Wes. I'm going to go to the fun question. Sarah, what does Black Oak Collective need to succeed? Let's make sure we get that out there folk, and, and tell folks how they can c- connect with Black Oak Collective. Let's make sure people support this process. So I would encourage people to uh, go to our website. It's blackoakcollective.org um, and click on our partnership partnership page um, to find out ways that you can get involved on an organizational level. Um, we need money to do this work, um, monetary support uh, to push these, these programs and to um, get connected in different spaces um, so that we can create this pathway for Black professionals and advocates to, uh, you know, have their voices heard at the table. Um, So I I encourage you to uh, go to our page, uh, blackoakcollective.com.org, excuse me, as I said before, and um, click on our support us page, our support us button, or go to our partnership page and read up about the different partnerships and and different opportunities that we have uh, for you to get involved. Um, and support our efforts. Um, Wes, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I'll say that's where a lot of our, our white listeners give us money. But I think I, I want yes. more you know, Black people. So the Get Involved page, become a member, especially if you yeah. live in D.C. and you know in Virginia and Maryland, um, you're close by. And we'll be, I think we'll be having a in-person happy hour in D.C. in July, actually, um, late, later July. So that should be coming up. You can also sign up for our newsletter just to get information about events. Um, and also the become a partner page for, you know, nonprofits, businesses, et cetera. That's also there. Um, we have a job board. So if you're looking for opportunities, last thing, feel free to follow us on social media, um, on Twitter at Black Oak DMV, and then also Instagram at uh, Black Oak Collective. Man, Sarah and Wes, thank you for that answer. Actually, it was, I like, I like Sarah's answer. Sarah said, listen, y'all need to go here and donate. I'm making sure, but I love Wes's answer. Wes says, do that, but listen, for the people, about the people, this is what we need also. We need community because ain't no, ain't no unity if we ain't got community. So I love that. This, this is my last fun. I'm talking about you, Wes. This is it. Actually, it had nothing to do with climate. Actually, it does kind of sort of, but not really. So, Wes, if, I, if you can go spend the evening with your favorite jazz musician, living or dead, uh, who was that? You get one person. And I can, you, you get that night, whole night. Y'all just get to hit, either hear him jam and you get to talk about everything. Who is that person? Mm. I I think my, actually I have two answers that. No, no, again, well, you, get, you can't have two answers, you get one person. <laughs> mm. I'm going to say, this is, this is a, a bo- it's going to sound like a boring answer. I'm going to say Miles Davis because I want to, not because I want to hear him play. He's amazing, but I need to hear his stories. Mm. So he's going to have, you know, I mean, if you just have heard anything about uh, his demeanor and just how, um, like, yeah, he's just a very funny guy. And um, after the 40 years, I think, or however many years that he went around and changed music, would have stories about crazy times with Charlie Parker, without, you know, about, you know, any musician like on the planet between, you know, the 40s and the 90s. I think, I think it, he's also just very funny in that. Um, so maybe, maybe that might be an area. No, that's, I love that answer. Sarah, you don't have, you can pick jazz. You get to pick anybody. If you have an artist uh, and you got one night with him and you could get to talk and build and just living or dead, who is that artist going to be? Um, okay. Yeah. So I'm not a big jazz person, but uh, I am obsessed, obsessed with Whitney Houston's music. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I listen to Whitney from the time I wake up in the morning till the time I go to sleep. Um, so, I mean, I think, and I think she was a com- complex person as well. So, you know, just spending the day, um, maybe seeing her record in a studio uh, and and talking to her about all of her experiences is something that I'd I'd love to know because I think that people definitely take the opportunity to 
tell her story in different, uh, different ways from different, uh, angles, but you know, you can only hear the story from herself and I'd, I'd love to have that opportunity. Wow. I love both of those. Whitney Houston, Miles Davis, I'm with you both. That would be an amazing evening. And our guest today, our West Gobar and Sarah Nesbitt, co-founders of Black Oak Collective. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank y'all so much. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Fake 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.